Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. Big overview. So Galatians 3 and 4 is pretty heavy theological section of the book where Paul is trying to get this baby church to return to the gospel that he preached to him. And the core of that is that we're justified, we're declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus alone, not through faith in Jesus and obedience to the law. There's this group of Jewish Christians who are causing trouble in this broader, in, in this Galatian church. It's not all Jewish Christians. Paul's a Jewish Christian. It's just this small group of troublemakers, and, and Paul's trying to get this church kind of back on track. In Galatians 3 and 4, where we've been for the past uh, six or seven weeks, that's the meat of his appeal or his plea. And he begins by saying, you foolish Galatians, to be a fool in the Bible is to know the truth and to not do the truth. It's a spiritual deficiency, not an intellectual deficiency. And he's saying to these guys, y'all know the truth because I told you the truth. And now you're veering away from it. Who has bewitched you or deceived you or led you astray? And he appeals to their own experience. He says, y'all believed the gospel. I preached it to you. You believed that the Holy Spirit filled your hearts. You know from your own personal experience and testimony that this is true. This group of troublemakers, what they seem to be doing is saying to these guys, y'all aren't actually sons of Abraham. You're not part of Abraham's family. If you want to be part of Abraham's family, the true people of God, then you need to follow the law. And so Paul goes all the way back to Abraham. In Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God. He trusted in him. And that belief or trust was credited to Abraham as righteousness. He was justified because of his faith in God. So Paul is saying, let's go back to Abraham. A Abraham was a man of faith. And that's, that's what I've been telling y'all. Yes, the law was given, but the purpose of the law was not to say, here's how you are justified. Here's what makes you righteous before God. It was to show you your need for a savior. So then when Jesus comes 1,500 years after the law, it was to redeem us from the law, to buy us back. So why, if Jesus came to redeem you from the law, are you putting yourselves back underneath it? That doesn't make any sense at all. He says to them, y'all need to be like me. I want y'all to be like me. I want you to be free as children and as heirs of God. So that's where we've been today. Close out this heavy theological section. Paul appeals to some iconic Old Testament imagery still circling around this idea of what does it mean to be a son or a child of Abraham. So that's what we'll look at this morning. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she's in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it's written, be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you brothers and sisters like Isaac are children of promise. At that time the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. 
It's the same now. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we're not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. So we're going to talk about four people today, Hagar and Ishmael, Sarah and Isaac, but we're not going to talk about them as individuals. So there's a a thread of interpretation in the Bible, and it's called type and anti-type, and you don't have to bog down on that, but it just it's an object or an event or a person in the Old Testament that prefigures something in the New Testament. So the Passover lamb is a, an example that we're all familiar with. In Exodus, each family sacrificed a lamb. The angel of death passed over their house. That lamb is a type of Jesus, who's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So that's kind of how that works. And so as we're talking about Hagar and Ishmael and Sarah and Isaac today, don't necessarily think about them as individuals, although they were. The way Paul is using them in this passage is, is, is he's using them as, as types. These, these four people are pointing to something that's bigger than them. And that's how we're going to approach it. He says we're going to look at these things figuratively and that's how we're going to do that. So again, Paul, these guys, these Jewish troublemakers are pushing on this Gentile congregation saying, y'all aren't really sons of Abraham. You're not really children of Abraham. That means you're not really in the family of God. You need to follow the law. And Paul says, well, there are actually two sons of Abraham. There's Ishmael and there's Isaac. So a little background. So Abraham is 75. His wife, is Sarah, is 10 years younger than him. So 75 and 65. And God says to Abraham, you're going to become a great nation. At that point, they don't have any children. 75, 65, no children. You're going to become a great nation. 10 years later, they still don't have any children. And God says, again, you're going to become a great nation. At that point, Abraham's going, well, my, the only heir I have is this servant. Like, I, we haven't had any kids. And God says, you're going to have a son, Abraham. And so this is bonkers to us, but this is not, this is kind of practice of the day. Sarah takes Hagar, who was her handmaiden, a, a servant, a slave in the household, and gives her to Abraham as a surrogate. Again, bonkers for us. No wives are giving their, nobody's doing that, but this is old school surrogacy. And so the idea is that Abraham and Hagar will have a child and that will be reckoned as Abraham and Sarah's. So Abraham and Hagar have Ishmael. That's Abraham's first son. And that's, that's one son. Then when Abraham, 14 years later, 13, 14 years later, Abraham at that point is 99 and Sarah is 89. And God appears to Abraham again and says, you're going to have a son through her, through your wife. That's an astounding statement. She didn't have any children when she was of the age and now she's way past the age. And God says, y'all are going to have a son. And a year later, Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90, they have Isaac. So Isaac is a result of a divine promise. That's a miraculous conception and birth. Ishmael is, the, is a son according to the flesh, the natural way that people have children. So we have these two sons. And then Paul says, so it's not enough for us to say Abraham is your father because Abraham has two kids. What matters is who is your mother? It's not just your father that matters, it's your mother that matters. Hagar and Sarah represent two different covenants. So a covenant is a, it's a sacred, it's a solemn, it's a, it's a holy family-making ceremony. 
It, it's in a covenant, you're saying, I am yours and you are mine. It's not a contract. In a contract, you're saying, this is yours and that is mine. A covenant, I am yours and you are mine. The, the only thing that we have approaching a covenant in our day is a marriage. And unfortunately, they're becoming more and more contractual and less and less covenantal. But if you think through the, the pieces, of, particularly of a traditional marriage ceremony, not where people are writing their own vows and talking about how much they love each other, that's great, but that's not the basis of a marriage. When, they're, when you're vowing to one another, you're, I, I, Adam, take you, Eve, to be my wife, to live together in holy marriage, to... to love you, to honor you, to cherish you, to keep you, and forsaking all others to be faithful to you as long as we both shall live. You're giving your life to somebody in the vows. I, Adam, take you, Eve, to be my wife, to, to, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, richer and poorer, in sickness and health, forsaking all others, again, to be faithful to you as long as we shall live. This is my solemn vow that you're giving your life to somebody you're not, this isn't like scrolling through the fine print to get to click for agree to all the terms and conditions. That's not what, that's not a covenant. And so Paul is saying we've got, we have two, two different covenants here. The heart of them is the same. All the way back to Genesis 1, Adam and Eve, God has been doing the same thing. He's been wanting a people for himself. I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. That thread runs all the way through the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, all the way to Revelation 21 and 22 and everything in between, which is trying to fix what happened in Genesis 3. I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. There's two covenants. Hagar represents what we call the old covenant. We're going to call it the covenant of the law this morning. It's also, it's called the Mosaic covenant because it was given to Moses. It's called the Sinaitic covenant because it was given on Mount Sinai. Paul says this, it's represented when he wrote Galatians at that point, the temple in Jerusalem had not been destroyed. It's represented by the earthly city of Jerusalem with the temple, the heart and soul of Judaism. That's the old covenant. And the basis of us being the people of God in the old covenant is keeping the law. You'll have no other gods before me. Don't make any idols. Don't take my name in vain. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor your parents. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. And then all the commands that flow out of those 10. That's the old covenant. That's the covenant of the law. To be the people of God. I'm going to be your people. You're going to be my God. To be his people is to follow those commands. The new covenant, that's what we call it but it actually goes all the way back to Abraham. And so this morning, rather than calling it the new covenant, we're going to try to remember to call it the covenant of faith. The terms of that are, are different. It's not based on keeping the commands. It's based on trust in God. And that covenant, again, it goes all the way back to Abraham, but we see it perfected in Jesus. It's trusting in him. And that's what Paul's trying to say. Yes, Abraham... But Abraham had two sons, and it matters who your mother is. Is your mother Hagar? Is your mother Sarah? Are you trying to relate to God based on the covenant of law, based on your ability to keep the commandments? Or, are you, or is Sarah your mother? Are you relating to God based on faith in Jesus, trusting in him, recognizing that you can't keep the commandments apart from him? And that makes a massive difference. 
This is the church, capital C, the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that is from above. So we would, this is Christianity, and this is Judaism, and they're not the same. Which, which way are we approaching God? Under which covenant are we living? And Paul says, y'all, church, Sarah's your mother. You're children of faith. You're, you're part of this new covenant, this covenant of faith that's been established. And then there's a picture. It's hard for us to remember this. When Galatians was written, maybe on the planet, there's 10,000 Christians, maybe. That's it. Paul draws this uh, picture from Isaiah 54, which was uh, a, a word of encouragement to the Jewish people, the people of God, when they were in exile. To be in exile is like being a woman whose husband has left her. You're barren, desolate. It's a very difficult time. And Isaiah, God through Isaiah is saying, it's going to get better, so you can go ahead and worship me now. And that, Isaiah 54, 1, is ultimately fulfilled through the church. The church start again, in Galatians, maybe there's 10,000. Now there's 2.6 billion people who are relating to God under this new covenant. Kind of Judaism was restrictive in order to be, to be a part of the people of God. You didn't just have to convert religiously. You had to convert ethnically. You had to become an, not just a Jew in terms of your faith, but a Jew in terms of your ethnicity. Part of the genius of the gospel is it's open to all people in all places at all times. And it's exploded. And so Paul, again, he's trying to encourage them. I know right now it might not look great but it's going to get better. Right now, you're being persecuted. So there's this one little snippet of a verse in Genesis where Ishmael, the older brother, mocks, that's the word in Genesis, Isaac, the younger brother. And Paul takes that and says, see, it's going to happen. You're, you, Galatians, you're going to be persecuted. If you read Acts, the primary persecutor of the church in Acts is actually, it's, a, it's a, some, some radical Jews. Within the Galatian church, it's Jewish Christians. Again, not all of them, just a handful of troublemakers. So there's going to be persecution. And, and what you need to do, and this is about the strongest thing Paul can say, is you need, to, you need to kick them out of the church. This group of troublemakers, this is not agree to disagree. This is not just a matter of preference or opinion. In chapter one, he says, these guys are, they're, they're leading you to desert God. This is serious. The consequences are significant. And you just need to get rid of them. You need to kick them out of the church. Because you're children of Sarah, not of Hagar. We're relating to God based on this covenant of faith, not this covenant of the law. And those things, they don't, they don't mingle. And we'll talk next week and over the next several weeks, what does it mean to live as these children of faith? What does it mean to live as free sons and daughters? Again, we'll start unpacking that in the next couple of weeks. I was thinking about several things for us to think about closing chapters 3 and 4. A few warnings, some, maybe this first one is probably not applicable, maybe not be applicable to any of you, but you love somebody who it's applicable to. And first warning, we can't work our way into God's family. And I think you probably know that, but, but we can't. I do think floating in the ether out there, maybe particularly in a Bible Belt context, I think this is out there, and again, you, you probably love somebody who believes this. It's, I'm a good 
personism, if it was a faith. That's what it would be. It's this vague notion of whoever God is and whatever heaven is, when I die, that God is going to let me in that place because I'm a good enough person. And good is defined in such a way that I'm included. Like, I I draw the circle big enough that I'm in it. And you, again, I would imagine that that's not landing on any of you personally. If it is, that's just not true. We've said this a thousand times. Our fundamental issue is not our relative goodness. It's our absolute deadness. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good or good people better. He came to bring dead people back to life. Our, it, it, that's where we're starting. Changing our behavior doesn't, it doesn't impact the fundamental issue, which is our hearts dead before the Lord. That was that second song that we were singing. Again, that might not be you, but it easily could be somebody you love. And I would encourage you just to, as you pray for those, pray that God would open their eyes to their need for a Savior and to his great love for them. Those two things. That they would, those, because you, you got there. At some point, you realized you needed help. And that's where everybody needs to get. I need a Savior. I can't do this on my own. And there's one available, and that's Jesus. This All of us, at some point, we can't work our way into God's favor. So all of this is happening not on the conscious level. If we had these thoughts consciously, we would grab them and recognize them for what they are. devil's good at what he does, so this stuff stays pretty nebulous, feeling level in us. We can't work our way into God's favor. So this looks like, well, I know that I'm saved by grace, but when it comes to blessing from God, however we're defining blessing, well, he blesses those who are more holy or more righteous or more obedient. And so we set about, particularly if it's something that's important to us, trying to basically leverage God into giving us what we want. How do you know if that's you? The two things you look for, one is resentment and the other is drivenness. Resentment's a deep emotion. It's deep indignation at being treated unfairly. When you think of God, if you're resentful towards him, maybe not all the way across the board, but in in a particular area of of your life, if you're resentful, then most likely you've been relating to him kind of based on this performance Mentality, And this is super easy to fall into because most of our relationships are, we, we are rewarded for our behavior. We're rewarded for how well we perform. And so it's very easy to transfer that same mentality to our relationship with God. Grace and mercy are largely absent in our human relationships. And so we're not constantly reminded that that's how God relates to us. Are you resentful? If you are, then that means You thought or you think you deserve something from him, which means that you've acted in such a way to say, I merit this response from you. If you've ever said something like, look how much I've done for you, look how much I've sacrificed for you, that is earning God's favor thinking. That's what you're doing. You're saying, God, look what I've done, therefore you should do this. God, look what I've sacrificed. If you've been a Christian for a long time, I guarantee you that thought has run through your mind. Look what I've given up. Look what I've sacrificed for you. That's the older brother and the prodigal son. I've slaved away. That's what he says. I've slaved away for you for years and you've never even given me a goat. You don't want a goat, but you want something else. And we 
we can approach God that way. Resentment drivenness. So this is when it comes to your relationship with the Lord, it's not, you're not working from a place of peace. You're working from this place of anxiety. If I don't hit all of the marks, I'm going to get smited. However, you're defining that. He's either going to do something bad to me or he's not going to do something good for me. You're trying to earn God's favor through your performance. You're trying to work yourself into his favor. And again, this is a a common thing over the course of our Christian life to fall into that. Discipline is a good thing. It's a gift for us that we, we do the things that are good and right and holy even when we don't feel like it. That's discipline. But discipline can, can, over time, it can fall into this drivenness. If, if, I, if I forget to pray for so-and-so, there, something bad's going to happen to them. If I didn't get through my Bible reading, well, God's not going to be pleased with me today. You're trying to, and again, none of it's here because you would recognize it for what it is. It's all here. You're trying to work your way into his favor. Last thing, and this is all of us, there's a massive temptation towards self-reliance. We, we live in a country where self-reliance is one of our quintessential values. If Like top three things about being an American. Self-reliance is in there somewhere. That's, that's, that's one of the things that we... Cherish. It's one of the values that our nation is built on, for better and for worse. And so that's in us. It's Hagar, Abraham and Sarah. They're 85 and 75. If you're a 75-year-old woman and you haven't had a kid, you're probably not super hopeful that next year is going to be your year. <laughs> and that's where Sarah was. So here's Hagar, which is a culturally acceptable solution. It would not be considered evil. It would not even be considered wrong. A culturally acceptable solution to having a son, which is what God said he wanted to give. Y'all remember elementary school, a Venn diagram where the circles overlap? That's what we're looking for. Where do the circles overlap? These two circles. Your greatest desires and your greatest resources. Where those circles overlap, that's where you're going to be most tempted to rely on yourself. Abraham and Sarah, greatest desire to have a son. Resource. One of the things they have, they're wealthy. So one of the things they have are household slaves, Hagar being one of them. So where their resources and their desires overlap, that's where there's temptation for self-reliance. And the same thing is true for us. And again, all of this is happening down here. If it was explicit and conscious, we would grab it for what it is. But again, the devil's really good at what he does. And so the, the temptations are all at the, that sub-intellectual level. Their feelings. We wind up kind of drifting in this direction of trying to fulfill God's promises in our own strength. If self-reliance is a quintessential American value, waiting is the opposite. Which is that that's that's 
what we're doing. Instead of saying, I'm going to move ahead in my own strength with my own resources to try to fulfill this desire that maybe is good and right and true, to step back and say, I'm going to wait. Abraham and Sarah had already been waiting 10 years. That's 2013. That's a long time ago. They'd already been waiting 10 years. There was no reason apart from a miracle for them to think next year or the next year or the next year were going to be any different. In that crucible of emotion and circumstance, Hagar becomes a very attractive option. And again, the same thing is true for us. They would wind up waiting another 13, 14 years before Sarah conceives and has Isaac. That's a long time. That's longer than some of you have been alive. 25 years. What does it look like for us to wait? For us to say, God, I'm going I'm to trust you with this. And again, particularly to trust you when I've got the resources to make this happen on my own. That's a, that's a real test of faith. If there is no Hagar, then Abraham and Sarah kind of don't have a choice. They're still waiting, which is emotionally difficult. But the temptation's not there if there's not a Hagar in the household. That's why it's both where our desires and our resources overlap that we're most tempted to rely on ourselves. I can't give you too much more than that because it looks different based on the desire. So this is what I want us to do. If you're willing, close your eyes and let's ask the Lord a couple of questions. It's a bit nebulous. So let's see if the... Just pray something like this. Holy Spirit, would you come and search me now? And would you show me my own heart? So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. When you think about how you feel about God, which a lot of us, we don't, that's not how we process. How do you feel about him right now? Honest. Is there resentment there? You know there shouldn't be, but don't allow that to keep you from feeling what's there. Are you indignant because you've been treated unfairly by him in some area of your life? If so, I want to encourage you to repent. Do you feel driven and anxious when you think about your relationship with God? Does your relationship with God, is that a source of peace for you or anxiety? Are you at rest or are you on edge? If there's resentment there, if there's drivenness there, I would say you're probably trying to work your way into his favor instead of resting in the favor that he's already given you as a son or a daughter. So I'd encourage you to repent and invite the Lord into that space. Here's another question. If I gave you a note card and said, list your three greatest desires, could you write them down? What would you list? Some of us are so numb to our own hearts. We're so busy with the details of our own lives. We're not even aware of the desires that are actually driving us. Do you know what your greatest desires are? And if I ask you to draw a line and on the other side of that line, write down 
What are your three greatest resources? What would you list? Is it your wealth, your intellect, your grit, your connections? Where's the overlap between those two? Can you recognize that as a place where you're going to be tempted to rely on yourself? You may not have given into that temptation yet, and that's great, but it's going to be there. And so inviting the Lord into that, God, show me what it is to be patient in that place. Show me what it is to wait. And the Bible waiting is not passive, it's active because there's a trust component involved. Holy Spirit, I pray for everyone in this room, kids, students, adults. I pray that you would show us our own hearts. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would lead us into wholeness, into peace. God, I pray for those who particularly right now are, there's a, a deep, deep desire. And it's been years, years. And there's no, not, there's no movement. There's no indication. I pray, God, that you would give grace to those men and women. What does it look like to continue to trust, to live as children of the promise, children of Sarah, to live like Isaac? Help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 